podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm Mergers Representative Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. First, For the first part of the show today, we're going to have an interesting discussion. We're going to talk a little bit about politics, the markets. You have Trump in the news all the time, and we've got, uh, looks like we're going to have a, a deal on the sort of new package and, and potentially a, an emergency funding for his wall. We're talking with Greg Valliere, who's got a new role, Chief Policy Strategist, AGF Investments. We have a macro-focused show with, with Simon White of Variant Perception in the second half. Um, but Professor, it's been a little, we missed you last week. What's mm-hmm. uh, what's the thought? The, the markets have been pretty robust here. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, a- absolutely. Um yeah, we've retraced almost, you know, we were virtually at 20% down, and we've retraced uh, more than two, a little more than two-thirds of it, which is quite a comeback. Um, so where do we stand now? I mean, the big disconnect, honestly, yesterday, that retail sales report, now this is a report that because of the shutdown was delayed uh, almost a month, but it was a shocker. Um, and in fact, economists, I've been contacting a few, are scratching their heads because it doesn't correspond to a lot of other data that we are getting, but um, uh, the GDP statisticians get their data from these retail sales, and um, they've now marked down fourth quarter, which was running near 3%, now down to 2.2%. Um, uh, percent. This quarter is running by the people I watch at around one six. so there's been a substantial slowdown, to be sure. Um uh, now, of course, we got very robust labor market. I mean, the January labor market was good. So was the December, uh, and even in retail. So, uh, you know, then from that we didn't we didn't see it. Um, the uh, jobless claims have been a little bit a little bit concerning. Um, they've been above trend, and that is a very sensitive early indicator. I don't want to pull any alarm push any alarm buttons now. Uh, 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 because we, first of all, we went through the government shutdown. We actually had a slight bounce back today in the preliminary uh, results of University of Michigan consumer sentiment. So, uh, you know, things are coming back to normal. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of mixture. The bottom line is, you know, earnings are still being marked down. Um, we are selling around, uh, Seven, um, 17 and a half times last year's earnings. If we get low single digits increase this year, we're selling at 16 and a half. Um, 
This is no longer as cheap as fourteen fifteen on, on Christmas Eve, um, but it isn't expensive, and I still think it's a buy for long-term investors. Nonetheless, I think the equity markets are certainly <laughs> they're not going to continue the sprint that we've seen since uh, December 24th. I think it's going to be labored. I think there's going to be an upward tilt to the market for the rest of the year, but uh, far from a runaway. Yeah, we're already in the double digits or over 10% year to date. And I know the start of the year, you were thinking 5 to 10, and then you maybe upgraded to 10 to 20. So we're at the low end of your of your, yes, your 2019. Yes, we're at the low end of, of, of that group. And as I said, I still think we, we've got 5 to 10. I'm just assuming... Uh, there is going to be a, a trade negotiations. By the way, I, I consider that 90% factored into the market. I think if we do get word of an agreement, we'll see about a 5% pop in prices, but probably some sell off after that initial joy. I don't think we're going to – it's largely in the market. Um, uh, we've talked about that. I've always felt that there's not going to be a war uh, and certainly Trump can't afford a war, given what developments we've seen recently. Um, I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, by the way, to see the March 1st deadline be pushed off for 30 or 60 days. Um, um, I think I said earlier that um, there wouldn't be another government shutdown and that he would declare an emergency to get his funds. That, you know, it's going to obviously generate a lot of political discussion, and I'm sure, you know, you, you're going to be talking to your guests about some of it there. Honestly, for the economy, it's not important, not really important. Um, I mean, the, the trade with China is much more important than, you know, whether the wall gets funded or, or enjoined by the courts or whatever. I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's going to be a political struggle, and it has implications for 2020, um, uh, but uh, not much, not much beyond that. In a few weeks, we're going to be talking with uh, one of these the economists that I follow, Danielle DiMartino Booth, who was one of the former Fe- uh, Fed economists in Dallas. And she's been writing some more bearish notes recently. One of them was how to doomsday prep for decline in the non-farm payrolls and uh, that easing has been underpriced. Um, do you have do you have a, anything if you think that we're getting a more sluggish? I mean, the retail sales was one little data point, but... Yeah, and, and jobless claims, yep. um, you know, we're seeing a little bit of breaks here. I mean, first quarter earnings are nothing to crow about. This is the lowest percent of beats. You know, we normally get 70 to 80 percent. We're really on the low side of that and with a lot of downward guidance. Now, this isn't as bad as like the, the almost panic recession expectations that people had on Christmas Eve. But nonetheless, this wasn't this. This isn't a real great earnings season. Uh, you know, it's going to labor. The dollar remains strong. Um, that's going to challenge internationally. You already know GDP growth. Uh, Brexit, by the way, a hard Brexit now looks more likely. Um, uh, we'll see it. I don't think that that's a biggie for the U.S., but it is for Europe and selling into Europe and the U.K. particularly. Uh, there's, there's, there's certainly challenges ahead. And, of course, there's always, a, you know, Obviously, we're, you know, already gearing up for the 2020 and the Democrats are sort of feeling their oats from the November elections. Um, and, you know, our, uh, you know, big discussion, what kind of candidates they're putting forward. But, the, you know, that that's 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 going to be certainly uh, material. I also say there was a very interesting development. Uh, as you know, Senator Rubio from Florida tweeted uh, I, I, that he uh 
supports a change in the tax law that would uh, tax uh, uh, buybacks of corporations um, like dividends. Now, we've often talked about in our discussions that uh, uh, buybacks get tax preference because it creates capital gains, which aren't taxed until they're realized. Now, the capital gains tax is the same as the dividend tax, but again, the deferral is a very powerful option. I believe what uh, Rubio is proposing, and the, the, all the details were not out, the first Republican to break ranks on you know, no new taxes uh, is that uh, uh, if they do buybacks, shareholders would get a form that says you know, that a certain fraction, like 30 cents a share, uh, is a buyback, and they'll be taxed just as the dividend uh, would be on that uh, case. It's, it's, it's an interesting break. It was a surprise to the market when it first tweeted. Actually, the market sold off uh, a, a bit, uh, but obviously this is uh, far from uh, any, uh, you know, uh, a big, uh, big movement. No, the buyback discussion is one of those ones that generates a lot of, uh, a lot of controversy online. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there is some when we pointed out now, I I I've recommended on the other side. what if 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 investors reinvest their dividends, they're not taxed. That would also put it on par with capital gains. Uh, but on, on, on the side of deferring the tax until it's finally cashed in. And I still think that that would be a superior way reinvestment of of dividends. I mean, you know, we know the. The uh, real estate has uh, that that uh, provision that if you invest in like real estate, you get capital gains uh, uh, deferred. Um, and this would be uh, even easier to actually to implement in terms of of uh, uh, just on a reinvestment plan. But uh, we do, and there's definitely still a difference between the way t- uh, capital gains and dividends are taxed, and really from a capital standpoint, there should not be. Yeah, I, I remember going back to when you thought dividends should be tax, tax deductible. Uh, just like interest, so there's all sorts of ra- yeah, rabbit holes you can go down. Do <laughs> um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I hope that enters into the in, into the discussions uh, of uh, any future tax plan. All right, Professor, thanks for uh, for leading us with some commentary here. Thank you very much, Jerry. So for the for the next, uh, we're going to talk. We're going to have a, a section here talking about politics. You know, certainly day to day, there's a lot of news uh, on the political front. And, and Greg Valliere has been one of our our key market watchers from Washington D.C. Greg, you just changed firms here, AGF Investments. Welcome back to our show. Well, thank you. It's a it's a great firm. They're in Toronto. It's a little chilly up there. I spent the last week in Toronto in the snow, but I'm really excited. Thank you for uh, for mentioning it. Tell us, tell us a little bit about EGF. What's, uh, what's their focus? Well, diversified financial uh, firm. They've been in existence since the mid-50s, one of the biggest firms in Canada uh, in, in our industry. They've got about 800 employees, and uh, I'm thrilled. I'm going to be doing a lot of international work. Very good. So how do you look at uh, the deal that's come together? Um, you know, always uh, some drama to the last minute. What, what's your thoughts on what, what we're seeing announced this week? Well, typical Trump, uh, waiting till the last minute like a reality TV star that he, he <laughs> is or was. And uh, I think that the real story going forward, of course, is the litigation. Uh, we'll see a lot of 
lawsuits. Uh, there might even be a resolution in both houses uh, disapproving of uh, him calling for a national emergency. Uh, this will go to the Supreme Court. Uh, most people, but not all, feel that uh, he doesn't have the authority to take money allocated by Congress for one thing and spending it on another. Uh, a real question here about separation of powers. But the good news is this. As a country, we get some relief from this damn story. Uh, for the next few weeks, while this winds its way through the courts, uh, we're not going to hear about the border or a shutdown every single day. Yeah, and so as you think about now, you, you sort of mentioned the global environment. Uh, you know, you heard Professor Siegel say he thought that the China deal was sort of priced into the markets. How do you look at the negotiations and all the news flow that we're seeing from from your sources talking about the China and U.S. deal? Well, I agree with the professor. I think the chances are good and it's probably in the market that we will get a deal. Both Trump and Xi need one. Xi doesn't want to see his economy softening. He doesn't want uh, public unrest if there are uh, manufacturing jobs that are lost. Trump needs a happy market if he wants to get reelected, and I think uh, he knows that. So I think they both will come up with something, certainly not by the deadline of March 1. That has to be extended. Uh, maybe we go into late spring, early summer, and there's some big splashy event at Mar-a-Lago or you know, who knows where, where Trump and Z reach an agreement in principle. But we still have a lot of issues to resolve, including whether or how we enforce all of this stuff. Yeah, and, and do you, have you heard what the big sticking points, like where is the, uh, the negotiations hung up on at the moment? Yeah, it, it is um, the enforcement mechanism. It's also the role of Chinese state-owned companies, which are monopolies that have shut out a lot of uh, companies. It's the Chinese treatment of dissidents. It's the Chinese theft of intellectual property. But from everything I can uh, discern, there has been progress between the two sides in the last few days. Now, your your note this morning sort of was talking about, well, what's the next crisis yeah. that we're going to talk about? <laughs> right. And so if we go beyond the, the China deal and we go beyond the, the border wall funding, how do you see the next, quote unquote, crisis that we're all going to be focused on, uh, the sort of risk factors to the market? Yeah, as I wrote this morning, it's Miller time or Mueller time. I, I do think that's the next story. And uh, really, uh, be, this, because this has been an extraordinary week for news, there maybe wasn't adequate publicity to the fact that there were a lot of people at the Justice Department who were considering the 25th Amendment to oust Trump because of what they felt were his uh, blatant ties to Russia. Uh, this all came out in a book uh, by McCabe, the former FBI official. Uh, but I think beyond that, we're getting very close to uh, Mueller wrapping this thing up, uh, maybe in the next two or three weeks. I, I do think there are going to be more indictments. I think that will uh, probably infuriate the president. You know, you don't know if he wants to maybe fire Mueller or issue blanket pardons. So you got to say, while the markets are looking at a better story with China, a real good story with the Fed, uh, no more government shutdowns, you have to think that this Mueller story is uncharted waters for the next several months for the markets. No, I see on Twitter trending is 25th Amendment uh, and sort of quoting Alan Dershowitz. For the people who may not be familiar with what all the politics here are and involve, like what's, can you give our, our listeners some background on, on the whole situation? Well, the 25th Amendment would be used to declare the president unfit, either mentally or legally or morally or, or uh, physically, 
to uh, continue as president. It's pretty radical, needless to say. Uh, and, but the fact that there were people at Justice who not only talked about this, but talked about wiretaps when they went to meet him, uh, that's pretty extraordinary. And I do think that uh, we've not heard the end of, of Mueller. You know, a lot of people felt over the last few months that Mueller didn't have much, that he was discredited. Uh, I strongly disagree. He has been interrogating uh, lots of people who uh, probably would like to cop a plea and make this go away. Uh, and I think that Mueller uh, is, you know, you look at his background, a former um, Marine Corps platoon leader, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, uh, deeply religious, best friends with Barr, who got confirmed yesterday as uh, attorney general. So Mueller's not going away, and most Republicans on Capitol Hill are quite insistent that he be allowed to finish. Yeah. yeah. As somebody who doesn't know about the 25th uh, Amendment, I I just wonder as if they invoke that, do they have to like get the evidence out in the open, or they do it in secret? I think they would have to get it out in the open. And frankly, I think the chances of this happening are, are very slim. I think Trump would say, with some justification, that this is a de facto coup uh, against him. And I, I think that the, the odds of this are, are quite remote. I would add, however, the odds of him being impeached, I think, are a little bit higher than 50%. Impeached by the House, I still think he'll be acquitted by the Senate. That's the big part of the story. I don't see... 67 votes in the Senate to convict. That's very unlikely. This is what, so this is what you call maybe the, the crisis, the uh, the next the next question. Yep. There's always sort of a question, what, how are the markets going to react? The markets don't like uncertainty, yep. so anything that creates more uncertainty certainly uh, could be a problem, but is you could say, is, is, is he really been the most certain president in a way? Is, is his policies, you know, what is that Professor Seals talked about, maybe the markets would go up in, uh, in, in, a, different, in a different world there? Well, the market's been pretty uh, uh, blasé and uh, unaffected, almost oblivious to all of the, the Mueller stuff. And I do think what's in the markets, as the professor would say, is maybe impeachment by the House, but again, acquittal by the Senate. As long as that's in the markets, I think we're okay. What, what, what you don't know about is wild cards. You know, would he try to fire Mueller? That would elevate this to a greater crisis. Uh, what does Cohen have? Many people feel that uh, Michael Cohen uh, obsessively tape-recorded everything, and Cohen may have a lot that could uh, deeply hurt the president. We're talking with Greg Valliere, uh, the chief political strategist now at, at AGF Investments, Toronto firm. We've got Lee Chen Ren, director of Modern Alpha, here in the studio with me. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, and so, so, Greg, a lot of interesting stuff. As you think about just the, the other major battles coming for the, you know, things that are going to shape policy, the markets for the, the coming year, um, the other big story has been the Fed. I know you've been watching the Fed. Yeah. Uh, any views, you know, how much, what do you think the Fed's taking action this year? What, what's your general thoughts on how the Fed's going to shape out this year? Well, my take, Jeremy, is that the Fed was not intimidated by Donald Trump. That's not going to happen. Powell would not allow that to happen. But, I would argue the Fed was intimidated by the markets, uh, which said to him, in effect, uh, don't do this, you're doing too much, when Powell said during the fall that he might uh, raise rates aggressively. And now I think he's gotten the message, as we all know, after the pre-Christmas uh, market debacle. 
And I think there's a very good chance the Fed does nothing this year. I'm sure many of your guests would uh, agree with that. And this weird retail sales report that the professor mentioned, you know, maybe it was a fluke. Maybe there was something that wasn't right about it. But until we get more data, the Fed's on the sidelines. I think the Fed's on the sidelines for months to come. Uh, have you seen any new bills, new things that policies that you're you think are have a chance of getting approved by the Senate and the House? Anything that they could come together on? No, but <laughs> <I think, I laughs> partisan pretty, uh, politics, nothing happening. Uh, yeah, I mean, everyone talks about infrastructure. Like maybe we'll get a bill because people agree with the premise that we need to do something. But then there's the little de- fact that the details are just totally, totally fractious. That. Both parties disagree on whether you tax uh, to pay for this stuff. How do you pay for infrastructure repairs? So I'd say the chances are, are not real good. But actually, if we got one more minute, I'd say the, um, the thing that I am most concerned about is geopolitical. Uh, North Korea has not complied. Uh, there's real friction with Russia on several issues. Uh, we've got Brexit, of course, at the end of March. You've got the, the Yellow Jacket protests in Paris. You've got weak growth in Western Europe. Uh, so I, I think there are geopolitical stories that it will get a lot more attention over the next few months. Yeah, on, on the not uh, not to take sidetrack from the geopolitics, but the on the infrastructure, it, it's interesting. On the we saw news this week on the West Coast, California scrapped their high speed rail line. Yeah, uh, we're both uh, been East Coast people, and we could use more on the Northeast corridor. We could use some better high speed rail lines ourselves. Um, do you think they would invest in that? You would, or anybody who's driven on the uh, the BQE or the Long Island Expressway or a lot of the main uh, highways in the Northeast know that uh, they need uh, repairs. But I just don't see a, a consensus. You know, one other thing that's going to be interesting this year is the, the enormity of the federal debt. Uh, we're going to come close to $1 trillion in this fiscal year in a full employment economy, which is pretty uh, weird. And I do think that there's one more big budget fight uh, coming. That's the debt ceiling, uh, which will hit in the end of March. Mnuchin can keep things going probably till midsummer, but by midsummer we're going to have another big uh, fight over whether we shut the government down, whether the government defaults on debt. I don't think that's going to happen, but it will attract attention to the fact that the deficit right now is just totally out of control. Very good. Greg, it's always catching up. Good catching up with you. Any closing thoughts, things that you're, you're focused on? Well, I mean, I tell all of the people I make speeches to that a uh, lot of craziness in Washington, weird tweets, but that I think you should largely ignore. I think for investors, people who are listening to us right now, the fundamentals are still fine. Modest inflation, okay GDP growth, good corporate profits, tremendous labor market. So I think the fundamentals are still good despite all of the dysfunction in Washington. Good, consistent message. Thanks, Greg. Great. Great to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Congrats on your new position. Thank you. We're going to bring in our our second guest, uh, Simon White, who is one of the co-founders of Variant Perceptions, or macro research firm. He's managing editor, uh, independent research firm, offices in the U.S. and London. He's joining us from the United Kingdom today, so staying late uh, Friday afternoon. Simon, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, dank and dreary London, as you might expect. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a little sunny here today, but uh, I think we might get some snow over the weekend. So it's uh, northeast yeah, here. Equalizer, yeah, perfect. 
<laughs> so tell tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your background and then what got you to leading to founding Variant Perception. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, once what is now uh, a lesser kind of spotted breed. Uh, that was a prop trader at a bank. And, um, you know, we had to try and find forward-looking investment ideas. And part of that process was reading a lot of research. Um, and the long story kind of short, or the short story long, was basically that we found that much of the research that we read uh, had a number of flaws to it. And variant perception is really the genesis of that. We thought that we could address those flaws. So initially, it was really for us. You know, we, we didn't really set out to uh, plan to set up a research company. Um, we did this research for ourselves, and we passed it among, you know, friends and contacts, and people thought it was very good. So, you know, by kind of accident almost, we, we, we spanned this off into a company, and that was 10 years ago now. Yeah. And, and how would you say the environment for research, for independent research firms like yourselves? I know there's been a lot of regulatory changes. How people can pay for research has been under pressure. And, and there's definitely been sort of the MIFID rules and how that all works. I mean, how would you say the business, how, how, how has that help, uh, been a pressure for you? It's a very good question. Yeah. I mean, uh, MIFID came in uh, beginning of last year. And like all regulations, you know, nobody had any clue as to what the sort of effects would be. And I would say that, you know, anyone that said they understood Mifid 2 probably does, didn't understand Mifid 2. Um, and we're not much clearer now, one year in. However, I think it's kind of like for independent research providers like ourselves, like unlike um, the banks, many people um, who are users of research were just used to receiving uh, research from all the banks for free, essentially. Obviously, with a the proviso, they're supposed to trade. But now under Mifid 2, they, they can't do that. They now have to actually make a, an active decision as to what research they get as opposed to a passive decision. So I think for us, it's quite good in that people are now having to actually evaluate what it is they want. Um, and for us, as I say, I think that we think our stuff stands up very well to the bank stuff because it's, it's actually quite different. Um, so people will then see a need for us. Uh, otherwise, where they perhaps didn't see a need for us because they were just kind of catered for for the bank. So overall, it's actually a positive development for us. Very good. So maybe talk a little bit about the the, the team there and the, the types of things that you guys are focused on on a daily basis. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a small team, small by design. Again, it was to try and get away from the, the bank model of research where, you know, that you might have a guy who is the, you know, the Eastern European economist, you might have someone who's a Latin American economist, and everyone has their kind of silo, which means that under the sort of publish or perish mentality that even if nothing particularly interesting is happening in these areas, they have to put reports out, right? That's how they get paid. Um, but often that means that you're just fed reams of research that may not have anything particularly useful to say. So what we do is we're all generalists here. Um, so myself and you know, my colleagues here, we, you know, we don't silo ourselves. We cover, we cover everything. And the aim is to really, so that we have the, the outsider perspective. So often the insider is kind of too close to stuff to really be able to uh, not see all the biases that they're, they're laboring under. Um, when you're kind of an outsider, you take the outsider approach, you can sort of abstract the situation, and uh, therefore you're much likely to get a, a better appreciation. I'll give you a very quick example. You know, we were screening for uh, various uh, stocks that we thought were overvalued in a number of metrics because... We thought the market was going to turn down, but we knew there might be smarter ways to go short as opposed to just selling the index. And a lot of the stocks that bubbled to the top of this screen were biotech stocks. 
which we thought was very interesting. So that then caused us to investigate much further. This was back in 2015, to investigate much further into you know what was happening in the biotech industry. So we didn't set out to to you know really to go into biotech, and we're not biotech experts. But having that outsider approach led us to something quite interesting. I'm Li Chen Ren, director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and you are listening to the Behind the Market podcast. Our show airs live every Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on Sirius XM Channel 132. So, Simon, when you think about you know how you look at the world today and and, and all the indicators that you guys track to come up with those worldviews, maybe talk, sort of talk about the types of views you're trying to create and, and sort of the asset classes you you try to reflect them in. So the thing to really emphasize with us is uh, what I think makes us like different is that we are data driven and we're agnostic. And again, when I used to, you know, read a lot of people's research, there was often the kind of the guru model where you'd have kind of one vaunted uh, individual that was supposed to have the magic touch, but you really didn't have any clue whether there was any underlying process to um, how they approach research and how they approach markets. So we really have tried to come up with um, a framework that's transparent and something that's repeatable. So, you know, when we meet new clients or potential new clients, we go out of our way to try and explain our framework and how we think, I think, is a lot more important uh, than what we think. Because then, at least when we come up with ideas, it may or may not be kind of consensus, you kind of have a feeling for, you know, how the person has come up with that idea under what framework, and then judge yourself whether you think it's going to be a particularly good idea. Because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of our clients are obviously investors, and they're putting money to work. So you really need to have quite a high degree of confidence in that. So, you know, we, we follow this indicator approach and, you know, we, we deliberately try and stay away from, from the guru model, you know, where the name of the company is uh, it's not my name or any of my founders or colleagues' names or anything like that. Deliberately, you know, I, I think the, um, the Economist magazine, I think, has it quite right as well. Like, if everyone's read The Economist, there's no bylines. You know, you don't actually know kind of who's written what. It's more important about the editorial and about the content. So that's something, as I say, we, we, we try and strongly emphasize with the research. Yeah, and I think we would, uh, Lee Chen and I would agree, having a systematic indicator type process is better than having just a, you know, a, a sort of some qualitative active stock picker. Um, you know, we both definitely believe in models. And so maybe you could describe for us, give some people some examples of one of your frameworks for how you think about pick, coming up with these indicators. Sure, yeah. I mean, it, it might be easier just to sort of like look at what we're looking at today, I think, because that's, yeah. that's quite a good example. And I can go through some specifics. So, you know, our job is a lot easier when all our indicators are pointing one way and the market and general sentiment is pointing another way. And it's much easier for us to write reports, uh, much easier for us to, to have a, a very solid point of view. But again, not to have a contrary point of view for the sake of it, purely because, you know, your framework is pointing in that direction. So today, you know, fits that bill quite well. Um, there's there's a quite a strong reflation narrative in the market today. Obviously, we've had this huge kind of uh, rally uh, off the December lows, uh, something, you know, very sharp, very extreme kind of rally. Um, the Fed uh, hinted at a pause at the beginning of January, then the Fed meeting at the end of January, you know, they, they kind of were quite explicit that they were going to pause for a, an extended period of time. And then, you know, you, you start to see this kind of reflation narrative, but kind of nothing that from our cockpit, if you like, we're looking at, supports that point of view. You know, I think I think why people think we're going to have this kind of quick turnaround. Um, recessions are, are kind of an interesting thing. You know, that's one of the first things we set out to try and answer when we created variant perception. 
how is it possible that most economists tend to miss recessions? They're obviously not, they're not silly people, they're not stupid people, they're very intelligent, but why do they miss recessions? And what we went tried to do is try to build our own models to try and build recessions. And what we discovered is how recessions kind of work is a bit different from maybe how other people talk about recessions, where they say our recession model has gone from, say, a 45 to a 50% chance of recession. I don't think they work in such a linear fashion. Economies don't go from a non-recessionary to a recessionary state in a linear fashion. They do so in a, a highly non-linear fashion. And the reason behind that is you get these um, feedback loops between soft data, which is market data and kind of survey data, things like the ISM, that sort of stuff, and hard economic data, so the usual stuff like initial unemployment claims, GDP, all that sort of stuff. So what happened in the end of 2018 going into 2019 is the soft data started to become very stressed. Um, what, that's why you're watching like a hawk for the hard data, because if the hard data starts to become stressed at the same time, you have a risk of this positive feedback loop developing, in which case the hard data starts to feed back into the sentiment and the market data, which then feeds back out into the hard data again. So you're kind of watching the hard data like a hawk. The Fed can come out and ease policy. What people are hoping is that because the Fed's actions can work much quickly on sentiment and markets, that um, they're quick enough to stop, uh, if there's going to be any rise in the hard data, you're quick enough to stop that feedback loop developing. Now, that may or may not be the case um, right now, but the, the thing about recession is that, like, right now, I would say there's probably over the next three or four months is a very low chance. That's what our indicators are telling us. But that can change very rapidly. So I think, as I say, people have this kind of uh, slightly over-optimistic thing about where we are today versus 2016. Because 2016, we had a much more dovish Fed. Um, the balance sheet was not uh, contracting. It was uh, flatlining back then. Um, you had uh, labor markets were not as tight as they were back then. Uh, you know, 4% un unemployment rate today versus 5% back in 2016. Uh, also things like global excess liquidity. So we look at excess liquidity, which is basically a measure that relates to asset price changes. Uh, back in 2016, uh, that was actually a lot better than it is today. It's quite um, turning down today and reasonably sharp turn down as well. So we have a huge number of, of things that kind of like that, that don't play out today versus 2016. So we find it very difficult to support the kind of reflation narrative. Um, and that's why, you know, we're certainly in the, in the camp that this is a bear market rally in the S&P. And, um, and at some point, you know, we, we don't expect that the worst of the market turmoil is behind us. Can you uh, explain a little bit to our listeners what the reflation you mean? You know, a lot of people... Um... So pu purely, uh, yes, that's a good question. There's a lot of terms in uh, finance that kind of get used without any sort of strong sort of definitions. It's a, it's a very good question. Pu purely in this sense, we're talking about uh, essentially lower rates then leading to reflation in asset prices. Um, so, you know, we've had basically the Fed's come out, it's moved to uh, pause. We had uh, essentially all the hikes that were priced in for 2019 have been taken out. We've now got marginal uh, cuts priced in. And, you know, that's enabled asset markets to reflate. So when you think about what causes recessions, you know, they, they often say it's like, you know, the Fed is the uh, the main one. They tighten too fast and then everything slows down or you get, you know, way misguided investment in certain industries. Um, is that things you see in or how do you, where, where do, you, do you think the Fed got too tight already? Like where, where do you think the next recession comes from? So, the, the, yeah, I think, I think the, the short answer is I think the, the Fed did get way too uh, tight too early. 
um, you know, we have uh, leading indicators we've built um, across uh, many different countries, but also many different sectors. So, for instance, the U.S., we have leading indicators for manufacturing, housing, auto sector, you know, many different parts of the economy. And, you know, what we started to see, you know, we, we, we follow these on a monthly basis. The data is updated monthly. And um, all through last year, we started to see uh, a, a more and more of a slowdown in our rest of world leading indicators and also in certain parts of the U.S., so primarily uh, housing and the manufacturing and also in, in parts of the auto sector. And the reason that was happening was because either directly or indirectly, it was due to higher interest rates. So, you know, when you have um, these indicators built and you can kind of have your dashboard, you start to see the kind of like the insidious effects, if you like, of the cumulative effects of rate hikes feeding through to kind of all quarters of the economy. So it's certainly, you know, the, the Fed's kind of taking its foot off the pedal, you know, relieves some of the, the symptoms for now. But, you know, monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. You know, so the fact that we've had three years of hikes already from December 2015, you know, right through to December 2018 from the Fed, you know, even though the Fed has paused, these hikes are still kind of coursing through the economy. So, you know, the, the effects are still there. And as I say, on top of that, the complication this time is that the balance sheet is still contracting. Um, and that underlying thing, I think, is the thing that, you know, people haven't really taken full account of yet. Um, net credit from the Fed, which is essentially... The, uh, they're, they're selling off their, the SOMA holdings, so they're the, the bond holdings that they have, um, you know, is declining, declining faster than it has since 2009, regardless of whether the Fed has said it's going to pause rates. You know, these things have real and manifest effects. You know, just because the price of liquidity has fallen a little bit because the, the Fed has paused rates, the quantity of liquidity is still falling. And that's something that uh, will still make an impact uh, this year. So we talked a lot about the U.S., but certainly the global economy uh, is, is really important. You have you're sitting from London, where there's a lot of European. You know, we heard a little bit about political risks. Uh, what's your thoughts on what's going on in Europe? Well, Europe, Europe as a whole, you know, is, is obviously slowing down. Eurozone, that's primarily a German thing. Uh, Germany is uh, has been slowing for you know since since middle of 2018. Again, that's something we're tracking from our leading indicators. And, you know, that's not a major surprise. You know, the, the real kind of, um, if you like, the, the, the catalyst for this is China. You know, China's slowdown, which we've also been tracking, you know, for most of last year, uh, is something that's obviously going to have quite big effects. Um, interesting today, you know, that, that's another thing that was absent. I mentioned talking about the reflation uh, narrative today versus 2016. You know, in 2016, China um, was kind of full stimulus, you know, when it needed to ease, they did what they normally do, and they just turned on the taps, what they call kind of flood irrigation stimulus. This time around, they're deliberately being far more selective. The pace of easing is picking up, but it's still not being reflected in the broad monetary aggregates and in their leading indicators. That suggests that we're, we're through the worst. So, you know, that's one of the things that, again, if you want to start talking about true reflation, you would need to start to see the leading indicators in China start to pick up, that then would materially or eventually materially affect how what's happening in Europe. You know, Europe, the slowdown, it's difficult to see any sort of major pickup in Europe before you see any pickup in China. And, you know, the UK, as you mentioned, we, we're kind of our own little basket case right now with, um, with our own kind of shenanigans, political shenanigans going on. Um, and that, that is it's kind of interesting 
partly because actually if there was politics aside, our leading indicators for the UK are kind of trending sideways. So it kind of implies that if the politicians just left the country alone, we might be okay. Uh, however, they're not. And, uh, you know, we're in a situation now which um, you know, is growing kind of more acutely by the day. I don't actually think, you know, for what it's worth, I think there'll end up being some sort of transition. But, you know, as we always point out here, we're not political experts. But the economy is, is clearly slowing. I mean, I can tell you that just from looking at the leading indicators. Housing is slowing. Uh, investment is falling. You know, these things will have an impact uh, on the country. Um, and that's something that, you know, you will insidiously and gradually grow as the year goes on, even despite what happens with Brexit now. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Simon White, the managing editor of Very Perception. And I know uh, once you started talking China, Lee Chen was going to want to jump in. And she, I think she's ready to, to come in here. Lee Chen. Um, hi, Simon. Uh, welcome. Hi. Uh, I actually have a question um, on two different questions. One is that you mentioned leading indicators a couple of times. It, it, maybe you can you know, help us explain how is your leading in- indicators different from you know the typical um, OECD indica- leading indicators that uh, you know a lot of market uh, people look. And the second question is, I, I'd like to visit the this reflection idea a little bit more. Uh, I think. Uh, do, do you suggesting that this reflation has happened or it's something which, you know, there's a risk of happening? I still just want to understand a little bit more on that point. Uh, sure, yeah. On the, the first point, um, the OECD indicators are something that, you know, I remember I used to track um, when I was a, a, a trader back in the day. Um, they, they, they were, they were kind of good in terms of um, the inputs in them are very intuitive. So often you'll find that um, you know, the certain things are just very good leading indicators for, for most economies, like building permits, for instance, are a very reliable leading indicator. And, and they're intuitive as well. You know that if someone wants a building permit to then build, there's going to be construction work. The house gets built. People move in and then they have to furnish it, consumer goods, white goods, etc. So there's, there's a kind of intuitive reason as to why, like with roughly a 12-month lead, that you see a rise in building permits, you see a rise in economic activity. Where I think um, we've managed to improve on the OECD leading indicators is they're so uh, heavily smoothed and filtered that by the time that they've began to turn up, the market has already moved on. So they're great if you like. They're if you're an economist, they're great. But if your main aim here is to try and figure out what the market's going to do, you need to have something that's more reactive. And so that's what we're interested in here is is in turning points. So we optimise our inputs to catch those turning points much, much quicker than the OEC leading indicators. And it's kind of at these turning points, unexpected turning points, that markets tend to be the most reactive and risk assets risk assets the most sensitive. Um, your second question on reflation. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think if you're just going to be like, if we're going to be like very kind of simplistic about it, uh, just looking at the S&P, um, you know, Fed came in, you know, the S&P was the highs roughly about 2,900, and um, the market, you know, ha- had a big fall, uh, and it hit bottom in, in December. We've now, we're now roughly, I don't know, 5% off the highs. So, yeah, you could argue, um, and, you know, I'm not sure what the Fed does at this point as well, that if financial conditions were extremely, became extremely tight, and the market had become extremely worrying, and we're now almost back to the point financial conditions have, in some respects, have loosened significantly, and the market is then touching the highs. It's like the Fed's work is almost done. Uh, from their perspective, it kind of makes their life a bit more difficult because does that mean they've been too successful 
in trying to do what they've they've basically done. You know, they they they, they had the market instability, which obviously they've kind of fixed for the time being, and as I say, financial conditions are nowhere near as tight as they were back in December. So yeah, I'd say the reflation is mainly, uh, if you like, by and large done. But I think people has think it has a lot more to come uh, in the next coming months. I mean, one of the I want to go back to China because, you, as you said, Europe. It, one of the reasons Germany's slowing down is is a lot of stuff comes from China and what's going on there. There was a news story this morning about sort of credit picking up, sort of social financing was sort of quote unquote soaring uh, to big numbers. Uh, you talked a little bit in one of your notes about just sort of an easing policy. Like, what's your general thoughts on where China is in trying to relever? Sort of, maybe are they just going to throw more debt at, the, at their sort of slowdown and, and come back? Yeah, I mean, they, they, that's what they've normally had to do. Um, and this time, as I say, they've been really reluctant to get back into that. I mean, all this stems from um, really trying to cr- clamp down on the shadow financing sector. And you could see that most kind of clearly in the, if you looked at the claims on the non-bank financial sector, that was the kind of like the epicenter of shadow finance. And the claims in there have collapsed. So in that sense, they have been successful. And they're really reluctant, I think, to undo all that good work by, you know, as I say, turning on the flood taps in full. So that so far we've seen, you know, several selected kind of selective kind of easings. You know, we've seen uh, RRR cuts, right? The required reserve ratio cuts. You could argue that's maybe not a true cut because really that just allows the the larger banks to bring on balance sheet, what was basically held off balance sheet in the shadow financing sector. Uh, but we've got interbank rate cuts. You know, we've seen some interbank rate cuts. But again, they've not really fed through because in China, your kind of uh, interbank departments versus your your more um, consumer, commercial, or non-commercial uh, departments don't really speak to one another. So that you know, interbank lending cuts don't necessarily feed through into broad uh, lending cuts. They um, have introduced lending targets for banks. We've seen this perpetual bond swap thing from banks as well, which is a kind of de facto bank recap. And there's also been some fiscal stimulus. You know, they've, they've ratcheted up uh, lo- local government bond issuances to, you know, to fund infrastructure. But again, all these things are kind of, uh, they're incrementally getting more, like more and more easing, if you like, but they're still nothing like what we saw in 2016. And that's why we haven't really seen it pick up in our leading indicators, because you have this um, bifurcated uh, credit system in China, so the credit kind of gets turned on, but it tends not to flow to the companies that need it the most. For instance, like the private companies, it tends to end up flowing to the, the you know, the SOE companies that don't need it as much. And that's another reason why, unless they do their full blow and kind of flood irrigation st- stimulus, you're, we're not going to see it pick up in the broad monetary aggregates, which is generally what you need to see to see a pickup in activity in China. Yeah. Um. Actually, on this particular topic, I'll just add. Uh, in China, you know, in the last couple of days, definitely the news was about the, the you know, the credit uh, was showing very positive number in January, and the Bank of uh, People's Bank of China actually had a news conference to address this uh, specific issue, um, and they mentioned um that you know for January and February, which is usually Chinese New Year time, and this year is February fifth, so. For January numbers, uh, first quarter Chinese data are always very um, seasonality driven and uh, also very driven by this holiday schedule. And another thing was that um, local Chinese debt, I believe, um, I haven't paid enough attention, but um, from what I read, it's that usually the local Chinese debt was issued in second quarter. 
And this, uh, you know, after the People's uh, Congress, uh, after the the budget is set, which is uh, usually set in March, the People's Congress. But this year, I think uh, the local debts uh, they are allowed to to be issued uh, in first quarter, which uh, likely skew the numbers uh, upward. Of course, we won't find out whether that skew uh, is just moving from second quarter to first quarter. But uh, maybe you guys um, uh, probably have, you know. Uh, paid some attention. One thing I do want to ask is this question was that you know at, at least a couple of weeks ago in China, this perpetual bond uh, to- uh, topic was uh, discussed uh, very extensively. I mean, from uh, economist point of view, you know, bond is bond, or whether you issue in per- perpetual bond or whether you issue in short term bond, uh, it should not matter too much on the credit cross. But uh, like, do you guys see something different on this topic? Well, I think why they've done it is it's um, again it's a, a, a kind of a piecemeal way of kind of easing, but selective easing, um, and, and it does actually help the banks in some way because if they can get rid of like a, essentially like a longer term, well, infinite maturity in fact uh, asset and be able to swap it for a much shorter term asset in this sense, uh, in this case a PBOC bill, um, then that essentially increases their liquidity. So then they can then use that as collateral to go and lend. So it basically gives them much easier access to liquidity. So it's not like a full bank recap, but it has a de facto um, effect of kind of recapitalizing the banks, allowing them to have more liquidity, which in theory, you know, should uh, feed out into the rest of the economy. But as I say, that's kind of what's not happened so far is because the people that really need credit the most to really get traction going are, are not really able to get access to it, you know, because maybe they don't um, fit the, um, the characteristics or the lending standards that the banks have. So uh, I, what I, the overall message I get, you know, from obviously sitting here uh, several thousand miles away is that they're losing patience. Um, I, think, I think they're losing patience, the fact that growth is, is still slowing, that um, the broad liquidity and credit measures are not picking up as they would like to see. And, and so they're beginning to increase the, the, the intensity and the scope of different easing measures uh, that they're introducing to try and really get the the growth thing back into swing there. Simon, maybe uh, we're in our sort of final four minutes. Maybe you give us a few. We talked a little bit about macro, like how, and we, and, and certainly you were sort of a believer. This reflation thing has gone too much. The markets uh, are not pricing some of the risks. What are some of your other big picture world views? If you thought suggestions for how people should position portfolios being a little bit more cautious on u.s equities seems one of the the natural takeaways from what we our conversation but what are some of your other big picture worldviews of of suggestions you're making to people the biggest thing this year i would say last year we had uh, essentially the u.s was the global growth cylinder so that was kind of driving uh, growth across the world and the biggest thing i think we're going to have to get used to this year is that um, changing, if, if you like that leadership changing. So last year we started to see the rest of the world, so that's uh, you know the rest of the world outside of the U.S. beginning to slow down, and that's kind of more uh, in play now. You know, we, we, the slowdown from the rest of the world has really been going uh, longer than the slowdown in the U.S., which is really only just beginning, right? That that die down from the huge fiscal stimulus. Is, is being felt now, and you're beginning to see, you know, our leading indicators for the U.S. are rolling over. But as I say, on top of that, you're, we're seeing manufacturing is slowing, housing is slowing. I think very importantly, you've seen bank lending standards in the U.S. tighten as well. So these are all things that are kind of slightly um, 
uh, ignominious of uh, for the cycle, you know, where we are in the cycle. So I think as that transition takes place, as essentially that the US is just beginning to slow down, but the rest of the world is kind of will be coming out of that slowdown. That means that uh, the US will start to underperform this year relatively to the rest of the world, um, whereas last year it was outperforming. And the, the main thing there, that the implication of that really is for the dollar. So that's going to be, it's going to make it difficult for the dollar to rally. So right now I would say the dollar is trying to top um, and it's going to have a kind of a, a negative bias. Now that doesn't mean it's going to sell off a huge amount, but I, I think it's going to be very difficult to see the dollar rally much higher than here. So I think, I think that's a, a definitely a very interesting thing to keep control of because anyone that has an international portfolio um, you know, from the US, it's very important what your view in the US is. And as I say, I think the U.S. is going to have a weakening bias uh, over this year. Very interesting. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, where can people find you and, and how should they uh, look to, to get your research? Sure. Yeah, we, we have a website, um, www.variantperception.com. Uh, on there, you can find our blog. So we blog weekly. Um, we always try and blog uh, interesting parts of our research. And uh, we're on Twitter as well, which I believe you guys are, are going to tag on your advert for the show. And, um, and yeah, the, the way to, I guess, experience your research is to go to the website and we can set you up in a trial. Very good, Simon. This has been a, a great conversation. Thank you for, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend there in, in London. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Thank you to Lee Chen Ren for coming to the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.